And what the Fed has kind of been telling us is that they want to be credibly irresponsible. They want to let the economy run hot. They want to see inflation and, and growth really higher than their forecast right now. That was Dr. Leah Traub, a partner and portfolio manager at the global investment company, Lord Abbott. She manages the Global Rates and Liquid Products Group, as well as the currency team. We'd be hard-pressed to have a more knowledgeable guest than Leah to lead us through a discussion on the expected trajectory of rates, inflation, and much more. Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast on markets and much more that's dedicated to your financial success. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. It's no exaggeration to say that bond investors experienced serious whiplash over the past year or so. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note, the most popular bond instrument in the world, plunged in the spring of 2020 once the pandemic was in full force and investors started to run for the hills. Then last summer, yields plunged to 0.52%, a nadir not seen in 234 years. Fast forward to recent weeks and the 10-year has bounced back to 1.7% which is the highest it has been since the pandemic began. What's the expected trajectory for the fixed income market inflation and portfolios overall? By way of introduction to today's important topic, permit a brief page from my personal history book. When my late dad would talk about investing, he'd talk about what stocks were hot. When the subject of bonds came up, his eyes would glaze over. I think I must have tried to explain to him at least 10 times that bond prices move inversely with interest rates, and he could never quite get it. So we're entering a world perhaps less understood to the average investor. But I promise to make it all make sense, and Leah will lend her invaluable insights. In addition to her current management role, she previously managed Lord Abbott's emerging markets debt strategies and was a quantitative analyst. And one of her prior roles was as an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. In short, we're in excellent hands. Dr. Trapp, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thank you. You can call me Leah. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much, Leah. We're really excited to have this conversation. So many of our clients, of course, are watching the markets, and not just for the bond market, as we see rates move up so quickly, but also it seems that there's this really tight connection right now between the bond market and the stock market, and days when rates go up, um, the big dominant technology growth stocks that have done so well for so many years seem to really get hurt. Um, many of our clients are, of course, very uh, attached to those mm-hmm. those stocks that are in their portfolios. So it's um, it's quite interesting, not just on the bond side, but also on the equity side. So I touched on the recent return of rates to pre-COVID levels, and I think it's important to clarify that when I talk about rates. We talk sometimes about nominal rates and sometimes about what we call real rates. And when we say nominal rates, typically when we look at the U.S. Treasury, and when I say, for example, it's over 1.7%, um, and in fact, today it's a little bit lower than that, that's what we call a nominal rate. So when you buy a bond, it pays a coupon, that's the coupon it's going to pay. We also have a concept of real rates. And the idea of real rates is we take the nominal rate on a bond and we subtract from it. The, either the current or the, the expected inflation rate going forward, and we get to what we call the real rate on the bond. Now, in today's world, the 10-year bond is returning around 1.6% or so. Over that 10-year period, the inflation expectation is actually a little bit higher than that. So consequently, when you subtract 
that higher number from the 1.6%, we end up with a negative real yield on bonds. That is to say, when you invest in that bond and you get back your principal at the end, the spending power of that bond is less than what you originally put into it. I want to just lay that out there for our listeners so they understand the difference between nominal rates and real rates. Uh, because when we think about what's happening in the economy and, and the impacts of inflation, we tend to focus on real rates as being the critical uh, lever points in, in the markets. What do you see as the path going forward now in terms of rates and inflation? We've just had this really impressive move in, in bond levels. Um, bond prices have come down as rates have gone up, and that's because you can get more um, interest on a bond today because rates are higher than the bond that you might have bought yesterday. So bond values go down as rates go up, of course. Is it going to continue? And what's causing it? Is it caused by this expectation for inflation or is it something else? Yes, very, very topical, um, as we've seen, uh, you know, quite the return of rate volatility. Uh, you know, really, rate volatility uh, was pretty dead for uh, up and through COVID. And then we really saw a resurgence starting last year. Um, and when we first started seeing yields rise, to your point on kind of the breakdown in nominal rates, it really was driven by the rise in inflation expectations. And we are now back to around, you know, 2.3% in terms of um, an inflation expectation on, on, on a 10-year security. And that is exactly where the Fed wants it to be. That is a normal environment right there. We are through, you know, any kind of COVID, you know, period, and the market is looking forward to, um, obviously, the vaccines, the reopening of the economy, better economic growth, um, and inflation returning to normal levels. Okay, now remember, the Fed has an inflation target of 2%. Um, and what they are looking for is actually to have an average level of inflation, you know, a right around 2%, or what they're saying is actually a little bit above 2%, which is something we really haven't seen. We really have not seen um, actual um, core inflation at, at above 2%. But the market is pricing that in right, right now. So it's exactly kind of where the Fed wants it to be. And what has really started happening just in the past six weeks or so, since about the beginning of February, is we have seen inflation expectations kind of top out here, you know, kind of indicating that this is really almost as far as they're they're probably going to rise. I mean, we might see a, a little further increases um, in kind of inflation expectations. But unless we actually start seeing a lot of actual inflation in the economy, we don't expect the market to price in that much more. So that means any further rise in nominal interest rates are going to come from that real rate component. And as you mentioned, it's still at a very accommodative level. The Fed likes to track the level of the real interest rate to gauge how accommodative their monetary policy is. And at a negative level right now, um, it's about a negative 60 basis points or 0.6 of a percent in terms of the real interest rate. That is a very accommodative level. We have not seen levels this low. Um, we have to go back to 2013. And even then, they, they did not say at these negative levels for that long. So what the expectation is, is that we will continue to see increases in that real interest rate that are going to feed into increases in the nominal interest rate for the remainder of this year as kind of growth and inflation start normalizing. Um, and the market is going to price in that, that the Fed is, is going to actually start increasing rates as, as well. We do expect the move to hopefully be gradual. 
in which case we don't expect, you know, necessarily the Fed to push back too hard on that rise as long as it is, you know, somewhat gradual. Let me just stop you there for a second, because talking about the idea that inflation expectations are probably reached a ceiling for at least for the time being, Mm -hmm. maybe sometime later year, if the economy really heats up, you might see inflation expectations take off again. But for right now, that you know, you guys believe that they're at a ceiling. And so if real rates are going to increase from here, that means that nominal rates have to increase. When you think about the nominal 10-year bond being around 1.6 to 1.7%, how high do you see that going between now and the end of the year? You know, certainly getting to 2% is, is certainly not out of the question. And and I think, again, as long as we can get there gradually, I think um, the market should be okay with that. I think it's the very quick rises uh, in interest rates that, that you know, the stock market and, uh, and maybe the credit markets start to kind of worry a bit. And, and the Fed may worry about right. financial conditions tightening too much. So we're kind of penciling in, you know, something around 2%, you know, by, by the end of the year. Um, and we actually think that should be okay. So let's let's think about that. For everybody, if we have a 2% nominal and inflation expectations pretty much stall where they are, then that would mean that we still have a real yield minus 30 basis points. So when you think about the equity market being okay with that, that means that the alternative to equities is still to invest in a bond over 10 years where you're losing your purchasing power because it can't keep up with inflation, right? Yeah. It makes sense, I think, right, that the equity market would be okay with that. And the idea of moving too fast is not that it matters per se how fast it gets there, but if it's going so fast, then the market's going to worry it's going to go a lot higher. And then maybe you'll get to a world where by buying the bond, you actually get a positive real return, a positive after inflation return, such that there's really a meaningful alternative to stocks. Does that all sort of fit together the way you think about it? I think that's right. I think that is, you know, exactly the way we would think about it. And as long as, you know, the rate doesn't get disorderly, then it doesn't really have to impact financial conditions. And I really think that is what the Fed is is watching very, very closely in terms of what's happening with broader financial conditions, um, which is not just the level of the tenure, right? It has to do with the level of obviously short-term interest rates. It has to do with lending rates uh, and the availability of credit. And it, and it does have to do with the stock market. Let's talk about what the Fed is trying to engineer here. The Fed has a number of different ways that it actually manages interest rates and it manages the shape of the yield curve. One is, of course, the most obvious way is it manages the Fed funds rate. But the other thing it does is it's been engaged for many years now in this quantitative easing process where it goes out and it buys bonds um, and it adds them to its balance sheet. And right now it has a really big balance sheet. How, how big is the balance sheet? Six or seven trillion dollars? Is that right? Yeah, it's seven and a half trillion. I was just looking at it at, at the end of February, seven and a half trillion. So it has this massive balance sheet. And the Fed could be looking at the 10-year and saying, wow, it's going up really fast. We're concerned about this. We're concerned that it may cause a effective tightening in conditions. So in order to combat that, it could go out and buy bonds and push the rates back down. It could increase its quantitative easing or it could target its quantitative easing at the long end of the curve, but it didn't say that. So does that indicate to you that the Fed is comfortable with the long end of the curve moving up as quickly as it is? And does it mean that effectively the Fed, in a sense, is starting to tighten conditions a little bit by, in terms of what it's not doing by not 
mm-hmm. intentionally going out, buying more bonds and keeping the long end of the curve down? So I think there's two parts to that. I mean, one is, yes, the Fed has told us, you know, sometimes explicitly in their speeches, <laughs> but also um, at, at the latest, uh, you know, March Fed meeting, that they are OK with the steepening of the yield curve. They are not concerned at all with the level of, of the tenure at, you know, 1.6, 1.7%. And they're comfortable with it because it's reflecting the economic conditions. Um, it's reflecting, you know, as, as we mentioned about inflation expectations, it's where the Fed, you know, it's where the, um, the Fed wants the market to be in terms of inflation expectations. So it's pricing in a good scenario. Now, they're comfortable with it, though, because they're not seeing tightening anywhere else in the market. It is not spilling over yet to other areas of the market. Yes, the mortgage rate is increasing a little bit. um, But if you look at the spread between, let's say, the primary mortgage rate and the secondary mortgage rate, that gap is is still pretty high. So meaning that even if the primary mortgage rate goes up with the 10-year the, the mortgage that an everyday person can get in the market has actually been higher than that, right? And the everyday person hasn't been able to really experience all the fall in the 10-year interest rate that we saw last year, um, so that there's still a gap there. That's just one example of, of the Fed not seeing kind of tightening in other types of conditions. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but corporates have no problem borrowing, right, as much as they want at any right. level that they want, right? So that is what the Fed is really focused on. And so I don't think the Fed wants there to be tightening. And I do think that if they started to see tightening in the financial conditions, they will act. They have the tools to be able to do so. They could buy more at the longer end. They could, you know, um, you know, they could buy more just in general. Historically, there haven't there have been that many other situations like this to look at, but we have had some tapering of quantitative easing in the past and obviously increasing of the Fed funds rate in the context of um, a wind down of the balance sheet. But in the past, the Fed has always said that, well, in an environment where we're, where we're buying bonds, we're going to taper that, those purchases before we intervene and start, start to increase the Fed funds rate. And that sort of makes sense because if they were going out and buying bonds, which is essentially an accommodation to borrowers, they're pushing rates down by going out and buying those bonds, it would seem potentially contradictory to push the Fed funds rate up, which is a tightening. But could they end up in a in a predicament where, as you get into the year, they, even the Fed is now predicting 6.2% growth for for the entire year. So that that means pretty impressive growth numbers for the third and fourth quarter of this year, maybe 8% or more just for those quarters. Could they find themselves in a situation where? the inflation expectations actually start to run up again and they haven't started their tapering because they've been quite clear they're not going to start the tapering until they see the whites of the eyes of inflation. And then they've got a long period of tapering before they can really start to tighten directly through the Fed funds rate. So could they end up in a, in a, in a corner or without the right tools in order to tighten when they need to? Yeah, you know, it's definitely possible. And what the Fed has kind of been telling us is that they want to be credibly irresponsible. So what the Fed has been telling us is that they want to let the economy run hot. They want to see, (laughs) uh, you know, they they want to see inflation and and growth and, uh, you know, really higher uh, than their, uh, you know, than than their forecast right now before they're going to start 
tightening, uh, you know, monetary policy at all. So what they're asking the market is to say, listen, uh, you know, believe us that it may look like we're being irresponsible, uh, but we're doing it, you know, for a reason. And and they think they can control it at the end. The market is going to test that 100 percent. The market is it has already started pricing in hikes sooner than what the Fed is telling us. Right. They're pricing in now three hikes for 2023, whereas the, the Fed is still saying they're going to be on hold. Um, tapering may start in a year and they may have to taper quickly, right? One thing they may have to do is we talked about the balance sheet is very, um, is very large. It's the largest it's ever been. It's much larger than we got after the great financial crisis. So they may taper a little bit more quickly, right? Um, and maybe the tapering doesn't last a year before they start raising rates. Maybe it only does six months, right? And then they have to, you know, start, start raising interest rates. There's going to be a test going on. There's a tension that's going to happen later this year. It's already starting to happen a little bit, but I think it'll start happening more if we actually get the growth and inflation numbers that are being predicted right now. The market is going to start pricing in the Fed having to move, and then the Fed has a choice to make. Does it push back against that expectation, or does it say, you know what, you're right, we're going we're gonna to move a little more quickly? Let's talk about investors and how they negotiate this landscape. So one of the things, Leah, that's worked really well, which is just so satisfying as a, as a strategist this year, is that when you see lower quality companies, their bonds performing better than high quality companies, it usually means the economy is doing better. And there's the prospects for the economy are improving so that the likelihood of these lower quality companies defaulting is actually diminishing relative to the higher quality companies, which aren't going to default anyway as it, as it is. And mm. so we've seen these high-yield high companies, we call the lower-quality companies, outperform the investment-grade companies this year because as the economy recovers, they have, we call their spreads, their yields relative to treasuries have come in, have gotten tighter, and they've significantly outperformed investment-grade. So that's a strategy that's worked for investors, although investors that are willing to step into that riskier space of investment-grade um, junk bonds, essentially, do you expect that strategy to just to continue to work this year as the economy moves into the reopening stage and the prospects for um, for failures by these companies presumably continues to recede? Or do you think that has run its course? We definitely expect it to continue. Um, and and for, for two reasons. One is there's a dearth of yield globally. Okay, so obviously the Fed's at zero, ECB's, European Central Bank's at zero, the Bank of Japan's at zero, Bank of England's at zero, everyone's at zero um, <laughs> in terms of yields, right? So it's very hard to get any type of yield. Like if you're an income investor, it's extremely difficult to get any kind of income if you remain in very safe, high quality um, assets. So there is a pressure to kind of go down the credit curve, go down the credit quality um, in order to pick up some yield. And the good thing for investors is that uh, that is happening at a time that the fundamentals are improving so that even though these, quote unquote, lower quality companies have more risk associated with them, the fundamental backdrop is very supportive for them. A lot of these companies are very cyclical in nature. Maybe they're retail, mm -hmm. maybe they're leisure, right? They could be in the, um, the hotel space, you know, things like that. Those are exactly what got hit the hardest, right, last year in, in the pandemic, and for good reason, right? No one could go anywhere. So what we're seeing as the economies reopen, the vaccine gets widely disseminated, there's a lot of pent-up demand, and these cruise lines and casinos and hotels and all of that 
leisure, recreation, travel, and even retail companies are are benefiting. And we expect that to, to you know, definitely continue for this year. And that is where you can actually still get some attractive spreads as well. So everything is kind of lining up very nicely for these kind of lower quality credit. They have attractive valuations combined with the good fundamental story kind of on their side. But when you look at the spreads levels, they're, you know, in the mid 300s, that's pretty low by historic standards. I mean, how much tighter can they get? We think they can go through the um, uh, the previous cycle tights. And one of the main reasons why is because, as I said, the, the dearth of yields that we're seeing, right? So there's spread and then there's yields, <laughs> right? And right. Uh, uh, and and given where, um, as I said, where, where risk-free rates are right now, um, you look at where some investment grade, you know, spreads are um, and everything is going to compress, right? We're going to see that, you know, compression trade. Now, of course, there will be a limit. Right. I mean, you're not going to have some of these high yields uh, companies trading through investment grade companies. Right. So so there will be a, a limit to how much tighter that they can get. We do still think there's there's some more room to run there. And, and we do think that people need income. I wanted to ask you about that. So for a lot of our clients, of course, are our families and they're not comfortable buying junk bonds, not just because of the word but they don't want the volatility in their portfolio. And right. so the idea that rates are going up is actually uh, a very attractive beacon on the horizon. But for now, they've got to stay very careful not to take too much duration risk in their portfolios um, by bonds that have too much maturity risk in them. Otherwise, they could lose money. So how do they deploy their assets as rates continue to move up so quickly on the nominal side? What do they do to find yield? What advice are you giving people that need to invest in bonds in their portfolio? You know, well, I I, I think there's two different avenues, right? One is an, an area of the bond market that that we like a lot, especially in, in an environment where interest rates are rising, is floating rate. Those are going to be securities, maybe such as bank loans, but there's also um, areas of the asset-backed security market, for example, that's very tied to the consumer or even um, some areas of real estate, commercial uh, real estate primarily, uh, that are floating rate. So what that means is that these securities will pay a spread above, call it maybe three-month LIBOR. Um, LIBOR may be going away, so so maybe you're using a different type of of floating rate um, as your base. But what that means is that, you know, two things. One is, is that the Fed hasn't isn't increasing interest rates right now. So as we've been talking about, the yield curve has been steepening. So the 10-year yield may be rising. Nothing's happening to the three-month LIBOR, right? Those are are staying very fixed. And that so maybe you're getting a spread of, let's say, 200 basis points, 2% over um, that that three-month yield. Um, And then, and even if we do get a surprise hike by the Fed, right? They reset every three months, okay? So if the Fed does, you know, raise their their short-term interest rates, you're protected that way as well because the interest that you're getting, your coupon isn't fixed, right? It's not the 1% fixed um, that, that you may um, be getting, uh, you know, in, in like a regular bond. You're getting something that adjusts as the short-term interest rate adjusts. And those, um, so those types of securities, they may be tied to the, the consumer a lot of times. They could be tied to the more cyclical industries, as as I mentioned. Uh, the bank loan space, you know, tends to be, um, you know, more cyclical in nature. Um, and and again, those are areas of the economy that that we think are going to end up doing quite quite well. 
Now, the other thing I, I will say is that um, you, know, you need to have some balance in, in your portfolio. And as you mentioned, you're not going to have all the junky names, but an area of the market that is extremely growing uh, very, very quickly, and we think offers very good risk-adjusted returns, is um, the ESG space. Um, those are, you know, they're issuing related to environmental, social, and governance. And maybe they are in renewable energy, which has been a big policy area focus, both in Europe and then now also in the U.S. They could have coupons that are tied to sustainability goals, whether it's on the environmental side or on the social side um, or even on, on, on the government side. And those tend to be higher quality credits, higher quality companies um, and agencies and governments that are issuing these types of securities. And the issuance has just grown uh, tremendously in this space. Right. So we like a barbell strategy. I imagine there's a big demand for those ESG, which is going to help support the current owner of those bonds, because there are so many, uh, whether it be pensions or other types of investors, that are rewarded in one way or another by owning these bonds that have a, um, approval, a seal of approval, in a sense, mm -hmm. with them. Exactly. The demand has been uh, really incredible. Issuance has skyrocketed um, in, in this market, and the demand is is there for it. And there's a lot of investors that are looking, right, to to do well by doing good, right, as, as we say. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and they want to put their money to work. And what about the, I know that you're not specialized per se in the municipal arena, mm -hmm. but let me just touch on it for a moment. One of the things that's been really, I think, surprising about the cycle is that we haven't seen the defaults on the part of municipalities. You know, you always see some, and there have been a few, but there have been very, very few, actually. And mm -hmm. not only have, in many cases, the municipalities actually held up better than expected from a revenue standpoint, but this last stimulus package had a good amount of, of money for municipalities, which will further help their, their, their ratings, essentially, and cause their spreads to tighten. Anything to add to, to that picture from your perspective? Many of our clients are taxable and are looking for tax-free uh, yield. Mm -hmm. We're very bullish on kind of the, the state and local government outlooks, um, you know, especially after the uh, stimulus bill was was passed and and money was was distributed quite needed to these these state and local governments. But you know what's interesting is that tax receipts were really not that affected in this past recession that we had last year, and a lot of that has to do with, I mean, the unfortunate nature of this crisis is that it's hit only certain sectors of the economy very hard, and it tend to have been the the lower income and obviously, you know, some of the services sectors um, that that were hit. But then there was, um, you know, the big chunk of the of the economy. A lot of corporates are doing great. I mean, you look at some corporate earnings. I mean, they are just. They're having, you know, tremendous years <laughs> in terms of the way that they've been able to cost cut and still produce revenue. So tax revenue has really not been as affected this time around that we've seen in previous recessions. And that was something that was a, a little bit surprising, but really, you know, has benefited uh, these state and local governments. So, Leah, I want to finish our conversation with an area that I know is very close to your heart because you're also a specialist in currency. And... Right now, there's a really interesting intersection between currency and the rate markets. With the U.S. now having increasingly higher rates than the rest of the world, we are seeing foreign assets come into the U.S. to take advantage of the higher rates. And that also has an impact on currency. Um, the dollar has been strengthening for a long time now, um, and it's taken a bit of a pause. 
in that strengthening as a result of the perception that with all the, the, the fiscal issuance that we've had and all the bonds that we've issued, you know, maybe the dollar deserves to be a little bit weaker. And essentially, the end of the pandemic has caused assets to, to a bit flow out of the dollar um, and move to other areas of the world that may be a little bit riskier, sort of the risk off trade. But now mm-hmm. that we're seeing this interest rate differential, assets are starting to come back to the dollar again. So what do you see happening in terms of this, what we call a carry trade, where assets come out of one currency and go into a second currency to actually try to get that carrier, that interest rate uh, differential, that the coupon associated with that? Do you think that that's going to set up in a way that's going to cause the dollar to start appreciating again? Yeah. What do you see in the future over the next several calendar quarters, if you will, from a currency standpoint, given this big rate differential that's now opened up? Yeah, so we um, actually even starting last at the end of last year, at the end of uh, 2020, we really started um, thinking that the dollar was ready to start appreciating. It had depreciated quite substantially um, between April of 2020 and, you know, through through the rest of the year. And we thought it was kind of overdone at that point. And the market, the investor consensus was all on one side. It was all the dollar is going to continue weakening. How could it not when when you look at the U.S. Uh, deficits and the level of debt that that we have and, you know, who's going to want to invest in the dollar, right? Um, and the Fed's telling you they're not rating, raising interest rates for a long time, et cetera, et cetera, right? And everybody was on that side of the boat. We started moving to the other side of the boat and the dollar did start appreciating in January modestly. And we actually do do expect that appreciation to to continue this year. And I think it's for two reasons. One is the one you mentioned. Uh, U.S. interest rates are rising much more quickly than other global interest rates. And it's creating a very big differential between the U.S. rates, both safe rates, but, you know, treasuries and also corporate um, yields versus what you could get in Europe or Japan or the UK, right? Other places, even if you hedge back the currency, you know, even if you actually pay to uh, to hedge the dollar, you know, back into, let's say, your local uh, euros, if you're a European-based investor, even that differential is very much in favor of, of U.S. assets. So, so we do expect to see, you know, money follow those higher yields. But also the the economic outlook right now for the U.S. is just much more positive than the rest of the world. Um, and it's it's partially because you've done a very good job of so far rolling out the vaccines and reopening, right? Europe is going back into lockdown uh, in, in, in in a number of places because they're right. still seeing, right. they're still sort dealing, right, with this COVID. It's very sad. Um, and, and they're going to just be delayed. We do think their recovery will come, but it'll just be a few months after, uh, you know, what we see in the U.S. And also the U.S. is getting this benefit of fiscal stimulus at a time when economic growth is already rebounding. We're getting the one point nine trillion. We're talking about an infrastructure bill which could add more trillion. Right. And it's coming at a time when arguably parts of the economy don't need it. Right. Parts of the economy do need it. Right. The lower income for sure they need it. Does all that foreign capital that could come in act in a way as a re- as a release valve too, with respect mm-hmm. to rates going up in the U.S.? In other words, yeah. just as we talked about the Fed quantitative easing helping to keep rates down on the long end of the curve, when you think about all the foreign capital coming into the U.S. dollar to buy dollar bonds that are returning a higher amount, at some point all that demand would hold rates down in the U.S. Um, and act sort of as a release valve to 
mm-hmm. rates continuing to drop. Is that a phenomenon as well that you think yes. about? Yes, and you know, 100%. I do think that's why you had asked earlier about how high treasury yields could go. I think that's why there's a cap, right? It's not going to keep, the curve just can't keep steepening, right, without a buyer, right? It certainly has worked in the past. We saw that phenomenon just a couple of years ago in 2016, 2017, whereas, again, we had this differential um, between the U.S. rates and, and European rates, for example, and 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 it did bring in uh, the foreign buyers. It did help the Fed out a little bit, right, without, <laughs> without right. yields rising too, too much for them. Well, we could go on and on and on. There's no limit to this conversation in a sense because it all is um... – connected, isn't it? Um, But we have to stop. We're out of time. But Mm -hmm. um, I always summarize three points, Lee, at the end of the conversation for takeaways for our listeners. And that could go in so many different directions this time because we've covered so much ground. So the first is that I would say, really importantly, um, we are going to continue to see um, in our shared view an increase in nominal rates and an increase in real rates to some degree over the rest of this year. We'll probably see real rates stay in negative territory and probably not be a significant threat to the equity market as long as the appreciation in real rates is gradual. It doesn't suggest that it's going to get um, out of hand in a sense. So that's the first major takeaway, I would say. Second major takeaway is that there are opportunities, even in this very difficult environment, for investors to deploy capital. And you've pointed out for us some really um, terrific ones, whether it be um, floating rate bonds. Um, whether it be senior bank loans, whether it be asset-backed or commercial real estate mortgages, and maybe even state and local um, agency type of paper, all provide different kinds of floating rate bonds where you sort of move with the the rate environment and don't take a lot of interest rate risk and benefit from an increasing quality of the overall economy where the chance of defaults are continuing to diminish. And the other area you pointed out were ESG bonds, as well as municipalities. You know, you like state and local finance. So those are all areas where we are willing to trust, in fact, building portfolios for clients, taking advantage of all of those opportunities, uh, of course, depending on whether they're taxable or tax-exempt tax clients, and in certain cases creating what we call crossover portfolios that take advantage of both of those tax and non-taxable environments. Those are, are additional opportunities. And then the last yeah. takeaway, I would say, on the currency side, is currencies are so difficult to predict, aren't they? The dollar could continue to strengthen um, in this environment just due to the overall strength of our economy and due to the attractiveness of the yields in our in our rate our domestic rate environment, um, which is continuing to attract buyers of dollars so they can invest in those types of instruments. Those are, I think, three key takeaways. I don't know if there's anything you want, might want to add to that. Uh, no, I you know I really think you covered it. I think. There are opportunities for in investors to definitely continue to get positive income um, in this environment. And I think you just have to pick your spots a little bit um, and, and be a little bit more selective um, and really focus on the areas of the economy that are really benefiting, uh, kind of coming out of this pandemic and benefiting from the extra stimulus uh, that, that that we're getting at this stage. Well, um, Leah, thank you so much for your insights today. And it's been really terrific. Great. Thanks for having me. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And as always, I encourage our listeners to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our our investment and planning ideas. 
You can also subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure that you receive all of our future episodes. So again, thank you everybody for joining us today. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.